Well, welcome everyone. Uh, here we are recording for Sunday, July 12th. I'm Larry Castle. This is Pastor Ken Brown, and we welcome you to this episode of That's a Good Question. the Supreme Court and its impact on issues that we care about deeply as Christians. Um, moral issues like abortion and marriage. And you went into some history about the courts and where they all fit into our constitutional system, the separation of powers and checks and balances. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to pick up with that this week. Those of you who are watching uh, may notice something's a little different here today. And uh, Pastor Ken and I are not in the same room together. Uh, we're, we're away with the uh, teens at a leadership retreat. And uh, <coughs> Pastor Ken is back, back home in the CBC studios, actually his house. <laughs> and so we're going to pick that up again this week. And we ended last time with the question of why the courts have become more controversial in recent decades than before. And you said it had to do with really two kinds of things. One, uh, the kinds of issues that they're deciding, and the interpretive approach uh, that they bring to that task. So we want to pick up there, and uh, we may, you said we may need more than this week even to get through this all, but we want to see how far we can get today. So in our lifetimes, the courts have been dealing with moral issues more than before. So why is that? Well, in the words of the late uh, and great philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer, he said that uh, in the 70s, we started to live in a post-Christian culture, post-Christian world. And by that, he meant uh, more and more people were looking at the world through a lens other than a biblical Christian lens. And as a result of that, people were engaging in activities that do not refer to then the Bible, do not refer to a Christian worldview to inform what they do. So it was inevitable that you're going to see people not only then doing things that are contrary to biblical morality, but then it was also inevitable that those who were so engaged will eventually look to have protection of that behavior codified in law. And so we started to see that happen, and that has been accelerating over the last several years. So um, we were talking about last week, though, laws are passed by the legislative branch, the Congress, not the judicial, the courts. So why are these social changes then uh, taking place in the courts rather than the legislature? <clears throat> well, to, to be frank, it's just a whole lot quicker. Uh, to have the courts do one's bidding, and the court's decisions are far-reaching. If you can get a federal court decision in your favor, then that means that the entire country needs to abide by that decision. So you sometimes hear someone will joke and they'll say when something's taking a very long time, it takes an act of Congress to get something done around here. And that's because... It can be very hard to get a law passed at the national level. And to have each state decide on its own whether to pass a law 
allowing abortion or allowing gay marriage would take decades, perhaps, if it ever happened. When Roe v. Wade was decided in uh, 73, there were laws in all 50 states that either outright prohibited or at least regulated abortion. So on January 22nd of 73, the Supreme Court invalidated the laws of 50 states when it found a constitutional right to abortion in the Constitution. And then likewise, just five years ago in 2015, when the court determined that the Constitution grants a right to gay marriage, at that time there were only 11 states that allowed gay marriage. Just five years ago, only 11 states. So that meant we had another 39 states that did not allow it, that prohibited it. And with that decision, those 39 states' prohibitions were invalidated. So all 50 states now uh, have to allow gay marriage because it's deemed to be a constitutional right. So one reason to go to the courts rather than go to Congress or go to state legislatures is that, frankly, it's quicker and it's far-reaching. It applies to the entire nation. Well, that I can see how that makes sense. It's quicker, but um, I mean, how can the court require all 50 states to do something that they had previously prohibited, you know, or forbid something that they, they had allowed before? That seems like mm. that is not the way it's designed to work. Mm. Yeah, and I'm glad you asked it that way, including how can uh, the court require states to allow something that they had prohibited like same-sex marriage or abortion, but also you ask, how can the court forbid states from engaging in something that it had once allowed? And I'm glad you asked it that way because it, it highlights the fact that there are some things that we would all agree, I'm quite sure, that states were allowing that did violate the Constitution. As an example, separate um, but equal on the basis of race. And thankfully, we had the 1954 Brown versus Board Topeka Board of Education decision that declared unconstitutional segregation on the basis of race. And for that, the court, though, had plenty of support in the Constitution. We had, we discussed um, during a couple of sessions a, a few weeks ago when we were talking about the church and how it handles race issues, we talked about the post-Civil War amendments to the Constitution, uh, amendments, Amendment 13 that freed the slaves. But then there was the 14th Amendment that applied to every state equal protection. And that was passed in the very context of the racial discrimination of slavery. So when you come to 1954 and the court invalidates any segregation on the basis of race, it has the Constitution itself to rely on. So the court was right to mandate that states begin to recognize rights given in the Constitution and for those states to cease to act in ways that violated those rights given in the Constitution. But what the, the court cannot do, or the court should not do, is find rights that were never given in the Constitution. And that's what they've done with things like abortion and same-sex marriage. The same-sex marriage uh, case was decided, as I said, in 2015, just five years ago. In his blistering dissent, 
in that case, the late and great Justice Antonin Scalia said this in his dissent, and I'm going to read a bit of what he, he had to say. He said, what really astounds is the hubris reflected in today's decision. The five justices who compose today's majority are entirely comfortable concluding that every state violated the Constitution for all of the 135 years between the 14th Amendment's ratification and Massachusetts permitting of same-sex marriages in 2003. They have discovered in the 14th Amendment a, quote, fundamental right, overlooked by every person alive at the time of ratification and almost everyone else in the time since. They see what lesser legal minds, he's saying sarcastically, minds like Thomas Cooley, John Marshall Harlan, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Learned Hand, Louis Brandeis, William Howard Taft, Benjamin Cardozo, Hugo Black, Felix Frankfurter, Robert Jackson, and Henry Friendly, all of them could not find it. They are certain that the people ratified the 14th Amendment to, to bestow on them the power to remove questions from the democratic process when that is called for by their, quote, reasoned judgment. These justices know that limiting marriage to one man and one woman is contrary to reason. They know that marriage is an institution as old as government itself and accepted by every nation in history until 15 years ago, but it cannot possibly be supported by anything other than ignorance or bigotry. And they are willing to say that any citizen who does not agree with that, who adheres to what was until 15 years ago, the unanimous judgment of all generations and all societies, that citizen stands against the Constitution. The problem is with decisions like abortion and same-sex marriage, the court has decided questions that really, Larry, should be decided by the people through the democratic process. And in so doing, what the court is now engaging in is making law rather than simply interpreting law, which is what their, their job is to interpret rather than make law. I, I, I listen to that quote and it just makes me want, it makes me want to go, you can't, you can't do that. You know, he's <laughs> right. I mean, I just want to stand up and say amen as I read or as you read that quote. Uh, but they have done it. So how, how do these justices do this? How do they justify How do the justices justify this? <laughs> yeah. Well, that gets to the second reason that we said that the court has become so controversial. It's the kinds of cases that they are increasingly deciding because we are now in a post-Christian culture. And so more of these kinds of behavioral, moral issues are bubbling up to the court. But it's also the reasoning that they're using in deciding those cases. It's the method of interpreting the Constitution that they're using that is moving us from the realm of democratic process deciding these issues to judges deciding these issues. Now, for the sake of time and, and clarity, I'm going to define the two competing approaches to interpreting the Constitution in two uh, just broad categories. One approach is called an originalist understanding. The other is a living constitution approach. Originalist and living constitution. 
Now, one who sees the, the Constitution as a, a living document, they intend by that that its meaning evolves over time. So what liberty means today is not what liberty meant in the past, for example. And we have to interpret concepts like individual liberty in light of changing circumstance, what it means today. And you see that in the, the same-sex marriage case. In 2015, uh, Chief or Justice Anthony Kennedy, who is now retired, and I will add, from my standpoint, thankfully <laughs> retired, he wrote the majority opinion for the court. Now, here is some of what he said in that opinion, and it'll give you an idea of someone who, at least in this instance, Kennedy is taking an approach to the Constitution that is this evolving approach, this living Constitution approach, that it's malleable, that it changes over time. Listen to, to what he said in his uh, majority opinion. He said, the generations that wrote and ratified the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment did not presume to know the extent of freedom in all of its dimensions. And so they entrusted to future generations a charter protecting the right of all persons to enjoy liberty as we learn its meaning. When new insight reveals discord between the Constitution's central protections and a received legal stricture, a claim to liberty must be addressed. He went on to say, the limitation of marriage to opposite-sex couples may long have seemed natural and just, but its inconsistency with the central meaning of the fundamental right to marry is now manifest. With that knowledge must come the recognition that laws excluding same-sex couples from the marriage right impose stigma and injury of the kind prohibited by our basic charter. He says rights come not from ancient sources alone. They rise to, notice this, from a better informed understanding of how constitutional imperatives define a liberty that remains urgent in our own era. In interpreting the Equal Protection Clause, he says, the court has recognized that, quote, new insights and societal understandings can reveal unjustified inequality within our most fundamental institutions that once passed unnoticed and unchallenged. So those are the kinds of things that he was saying five years ago in that decision that give you a flavor for how a living constitutional interpretation approach uh, is gone about. Now, the most egregious and obvious fallacy of the living constitution approach is the one that we talked about last week. You may remember, we saw that the right to privacy that the Supreme Court really discovered in the Constitution they said was based upon, quote, penumbras, remember that? Penumbras mm -hmm. formed by emanations from the First Amendment. And that became the constitutional basis for a right to abortion on demand. I'm glad we introduced that one last week instead of this week. I don't have the dictionaries for the from the Resource <laughs> Center available. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Clarence, Tom Clarence Thomas, who's a justice on the Supreme Court, I'll mention him a bit later as well, but he's one who does not subscribe to the living constitution approach. He's an, an originalist. He makes fun of that phrase, penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. I'm told he has a plaque in his office and it says, please do not emanate on my penumbras. Oh my, <laughs> I want that. <laughs> so 
there's the living, the evolving constitution approach. And that's one in which we really discover new rights that did not exist and they were not even contemplated at the time that the original constitution or its amendments were written. Okay, so that's one. But there's another approach that protects against, um, you know, whoever's on the bench than finding rights in the constitution like a right to abortion or a right to same-sex marriage. Yeah, now the other approach is, as I mentioned earlier, that's called the originalist uh, approach. And that says that you want to interpret the Constitution by its original meaning, or sometimes called original understanding. What was meant by those who wrote it, or how was it understood by those who received it at the time that it was originally delivered. Now doing that keeps us from assigning then new meaning and provide, providing new rights that are not in the Constitution itself. I mentioned Clarence Thomas a, a bit ago. In an interview, he illustrated what it means to be an originalist this way. He says, if you see a stop sign, what do you do? You stop. He says, that makes you an originalist. <laughs> he says, that's what the word meant at the time it was, it was written. If you think it means something else, well then, you know, too bad. And he says, you know, words have to mean things. Language has to communicate something. Otherwise, he says this, he says, you disenfranchise ordinary people with fast talking, double talk, and double entendre rather than plain spoken words. Mm. He said that that those like himself in the legal profession are, quote, obligated not to play word games and become people who see what others do not, meaning that has to be divined by a few of us in black robes. So he and those of the originalist school seek to confine themselves to what did the text mean at the time that it was, was written. This reminds me of the approach we take to scripture. You know, this is what we learned hmm. in seminary. You, you know, a text can never mean what a text never meant. What's, what's mm -hmm. the authorial intent? So you mentioned yeah. Clarence Thomas as an originalist. Are there others of the nine Supreme Court justices who fall into that category? No, actually, uh, five of the current nine justices fall into the originalist broad category one way or another. They have nuances of difference of approach between them, but they all seek to go back to the original text. And so along with Clarence Thomas, there is the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, and then there's Justice uh, Samuel Alito, and the two justices that have been appointed to the court by President Trump, Neil Gorsuch and uh, Brett Kavanaugh. All of them are originalists in a sense. They were all members of the Federalist Society, and I mentioned the Federalist Society last week. But they have slightly different approaches in originalism. That means sometimes they end up deciding with the four living Constitution judges. Uh, here's an example of that. There was a decision handed down by the court just in the last uh, couple of weeks, and it was a decision about employers not being able to discriminate against transgender employees. Now, it was a case that involved a funeral home here in Garden City, Michigan, and the funeral home had had a longtime male employee that had a sex change operation. And when now 
this female employee came to work. Uh, her, the owner of the funeral home uh, talked with her about it and uh, said that we won't be able to use you in the capacity of greeting our people and so on that you were used uh, in the past. And so she was, was let go. That went all the way to the Supreme Court. And two weeks ago, the Supreme Court in a six to three decision said that the funeral home had violated the civil rights of that employee because the 1964 Civil Rights Act had said that employers cannot discriminate against employees, and here are the three words, because of sex. Mm. Now, at the time that was written, no one thought it applied to sexual orientation. But one that's okay if you're a living constitution person, because remember, it evolves. The meaning evolves over time. And so the four living constitution judges that we have on the court all voted to find the funeral home in violation. But what was somewhat surprising was that one of the originalists, Neil Gorsuch, sided with them. And as a matter of fact, uh, he wrote the majority opinion. Now, it was a 6-3 decision, so John Roberts, uh, also of the originalist side, sided with them as well. There's some question about though whether or not he actually agreed with that side or whether or not he went that way so that he would be allowed to assign who writes the majority opinion. Uh, he assigned it to Gorsuch, who wrote the opinion. Uh, that's some inside pool about how the court works that I won't bore you with anymore. But you have this six to three decision, and at least Gorsuch, of the originalist side, ended up agreeing with the four on the other side on this decision. And he wrote this in a book about the way that he interprets the Constitution. He said this, the text of a statute and only the text becomes law, not a legislator's expressed intentions, not nuggets buried in the legislative history, and certainly not a judge's policy preferences. And so for him in this particular decision, since the law, that 1964 Civil Rights Act says because of sex, and sex in 1964 meant biological sex, and it means that today, then if the employee of this funeral home were a male, he could have his job, but since she's now a female, she can't, then in Gorsuch's mind, just using the text of the law and the meaning of the word, then that's discriminating because of sex, because of biological sex. But that case shows that Sometimes originalism is going to yield surprising and even undesirable results. Not even what the judge himself or herself might prefer. An example of this is the real champion for many, many years of originalism. And the one who really has popularized it in our day and has seen a sea change in law schools who now teach originalism and for many decades. Amazingly, you couldn't find law school faculty who were of the originalist school, the originalist camp. But Antonin Scalia is the one who really has brought originalism to the fore. In 2017, he, he died suddenly, but, uh, or excuse me, in 2016, he, he died suddenly. And uh, Antonin Scalia uh, is an originalist. Uh, he's a patriot, very conservative, but in a flag-burning decision. He uh, voted in favor of allowing uh, flag burning. And so 
it made unco declared unconstitutional laws against flag burning, not because he's in favor of flag burning. He's very much against it, and he said so publicly. So he's not personally in favor of it at all, but he believes the original meaning, the original understanding of the Constitution's freedom of speech includes the right to be able to do this. And so that's not the outcome he wanted, but originalists, if they're being true to their principles, will interpret the Constitution according to those principles, however the decision comes out. I said earlier that, um, you know, this reminds me of how we approach uh, an old document like the Bible. So this is very relevant, very important for us uh, mm -hmm. in the approach that we take to that. So there are some parallels between what the court does and with the Constitution and what we do with the Bible, right? There are indeed, yeah. And uh, we might need to continue some of that next week, but uh, you tell me how much, uh, as long as we have time to, to keep going. Um, you know, I define a sort of originalism in one of the foundational classes that we teach at our church, at Community Bible Church. We try to have everybody go through certain foundational classes. One of those is Master Plan for Life, and I call that a systematic theology for regular people. And I just say it that way because it's theology, but it's at waste level. And so it's, I think, easy to understand. And we have it divided into sections on the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of the Bible, and humanity, and sin, and salvation, and the church. Uh, we have 28 lessons total in it. But several of those lessons are under the doctrine of the Bible. And when we deal with the Bible, uh, we have lessons in there on principles of interpretation. And in there, when we talk about how to interpret the Bible, we do, as you said earlier, Larry, that this is something that we were taught in seminary, that context determines meaning. So we uh, say in Master Plan for Life that if you want to interpret the Bible accurately, you're going to have to set each passage in its context. But then that raises the question, what do we have to do in order to set a passage of the Bible in its context? And this is very similar a very similar exercise to what the judges should do when they set in context a portion of the Constitution or a portion of a statute, a law that's been that's been passed by the legislature. Context determines meaning. And we say in that class that in order for for us to communicate at all, to communicate like we're doing right now. For people who are viewing this to hear what we're saying and to interpret what we're saying, that they are engaging, every one of you right now is engaging in interpretation. You're not doing it consciously. You don't have to do it consciously. You're just kind of doing it automatically because you can set our words in their context and context determines meaning. So if you're talking to someone who is contemporary and local. That is, contemporary, they live at the same time you do, and local, they're in the same place that you are. Then you can understand what they're saying. You can interpret what they're saying. You can interpret their intended meaning very easily, very quickly, without having to think about it. Because you understand idioms, you understand exp uh, 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 expressions, um, that they're that they're using figures of speech that 
we're using, uh, double meanings, all of that, you understand because you live in the same place at the same time. But if you're interpreting a document that's 2,000 years old, like the New Testament, or over 200 years old, like the Constitution, you now need to consciously think about things that we unconsciously do all the time, that you're doing right now. So when we have those lessons on how to interpret the Bible, really what we're doing is we're unfolding for us what it is we do all the time when we read something, when we listen to something. We're all doing this, but now we have to consciously do what we unconsciously automatically do. And we go through then some principles that all of us have to engage in in order to understand what's being communicated to us. Now, those are the principles of interpretation that I can get to and maybe we'll get to next time. Then. Yeah, well, and we, we might have. We're only at about 28 minutes right now, so we might be able nope. to if you'd like to talk about those. Nope. But I was just going to interject here. Um, we're not saying that as a country we might not ever change our mind about something or think mm. there's a better way than we originally thought of. We're just saying that the courts are not the tool designed to amend our Constitution. I used the word right there to amend our Constitution. An amendment mm -hmm. to the Constitution would be the way to change that, right? Yeah, or to our laws. Well, and and that's, the, that's the way the founders saw it, and that's why they put an amendment provision in the Constitution, because the Constitution is going to have to stand. The Constitution, they apparently did not expect that the Constitution would be so elastic, so malleable, that it could become in later years whatever that particular society thought it should have been. If you want it to be something else, they thought, you're going to have to change it, amend it. And so here's how an amendment happens according to the Constitution. They put it right in the Constitution. Here's how you can make better what we are doing. Here's how you can improve what we've done. And we've done that. We've done that about, you know, between two and three, th uh, three dozen times over, over 200 years from the Constitution. But we haven't uh, left it to the courts to do that. We've left it to the people to do that through the amendment process. Yeah, excellent point. Yeah. Well, uh, it would be great to get into those principles of interpretation, but I'm looking at it. We're at 30 minutes, shorter okay. significantly than last week. We, we kind of crammed a lot in last week, but I'm guessing we won't have time to get into them like we want to get into them if we keep on yeah. right now, right? So maybe pick those up yeah. next week. Okay, sounds good. All right, great. Well, thanks for uh, doing this. was unusual to do this this way, but uh, thankfully <laughs> it seems like it worked. I don't have any Wi-Fi in this house. We're truly out and away. And so we're, we're able to do this all over the phone network, thankfully. Uh, so thank you for watching. And uh, don't forget, if you are uh, not already following us on Facebook, do that and share this as you see it, you know, watch it, share it so friends and uh, people you know can see it. And then if you're not already subscribed to us on YouTube, do that. If you're watching this on our website through the blog or straight through YouTube, you can click the little icon, our church logo in the corner there. That'll take you to our, our YouTube channel. You can hit subscribe and there's a little bell there. If you click on that, that'll actually give you a notification when we publish new content. So our sermons from Sunday morning and more episodes of That's a Good Question and whatever else that we publish. So thanks for watching and uh, we will see you next time.
you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.